In everything in life, we build on the previous generation. When the new iPhones come out in two months, like they do every fall, they will build upon the last 12 years of iPhones. Nobody says, ooh, let me go back to the Blackberry. We're dealing with a generation of young people that thinks that's still a fruit. They don't even know what a Blackberry was. <laughs> and there were phones that were blueberries and razors. They had all sorts of fun names. And now we just call them an Apple or a Samsung or a Google or whatever dumb phones are out there now. We built upon the previous generation of technology. We don't go back and let me get the big old Motorola bag phone. Some of you don't realize first mobile phones had to be carried around in a bag a la Vietnam. I didn't know if you were going to call your wife and be late or call in an airstrike. <laughs> I, I was a friend, had a friend in high school, and uh, he was an older gentleman. He had a phone in his car, and it was $30 a phone call. And they, I, I got to ride around with him a lot. I think I saw him ever make one phone call, probably just to show off to this little kid. Is that a phone? It was in the console. I don't know how many of you remember that. You lift the, the thing, and there was the phone, and it was like, and all the guts was in the transmission because it took that much. And technology's changed. We're not going back to car phones that take up the center console and cost $30. We build upon the previous generation. Same with structural engineering, same with chemistry, same with pharmaceuticals and medicine. Everything in the world builds upon the previous generation except the church. And because of our religious pride, when we stink, fail, or implode, we hide it, trying to preserve our image. Who cares about God's image? So I'm condemning that this morning. You old people, and you need to be reminded of your humanity and your mortality because death's coming for you. You have a job and an obligation to the young generation. Invest in us. Invest in them. Some of you make, I would almost encourage, I, I just talked to Pastor Brett and Miss Bobby and I, we had a phone call this week. I guess it was Monday, was that Monday this week? So I told Pastor Brett, build a sermon on 10 things or, or things you've learned after 10 years on the mission field. Make a list of all the mistakes you've made. Make a sermon out of it so we can build upon it. Some of you old folks, let's say you're 50 and up. Make a list of all your kingdom mistakes. I would start tracking your regrets. Make a list of it. What do you regret and then what would you tell us? I would even encourage you to troubleshoot your regret so you could explain to the younger generation how not to walk down regret alley in your footsteps. You have to be mature enough to say, follow my footsteps except for that five years. Please follow my footsteps, but not for that six months. Follow my footsteps business, but not kingdom. Follow my footsteps in the kingdom, but not parenting. You've got to be able to be honest about what's worthy about you to be followed and what isn't. So I, I'm sincere when I say, you older folks, make a list, make a bullet point list of your regrets as a Christian, your regrets as a spouse, your regrets as a parent. Make a list maybe of things where you can see looking back, you failed God and wish you'd done things better. None of this is to condemn you. This is a debriefing before heaven, not that you finish this document and you die, but you will all die. It's not anytime soon. We need this wealth of information out of you. We need to build upon it. And once you figure out what your regrets are, there's some of them you're going to be able to change between now and retirement or death. Some of them you won't, and you have to be healed from that. Thank God he wants to heal the brokenhearted. 
It would also be wise as husband and wife to look at each other and say, what do we regret so far in life? What, what can we change? My wife and I do that from time to time. Honey, do you have any regrets? And we have to be honest and be painful sometimes. I, I wish we'd do this more. I wish we had done that different. Don't, I don't know, we're, we're, we are superstitious and religious and just stubborn. We think if we don't acknowledge regrets, they'll go away. And we're afraid to bring up our marital regrets thinking it might hurt the other person. Well, if you regret something, bring it up, solve with, deal with the hurt later. But you're not going to fix the regret without a little bit of pain because you've got to acknowledge the regret and then talk about everybody's role in that regret and what could we do better. Uh, really, what we're trying to deal with here is all these different forms of pride. And even if you can't redeem the lost time in your family or parenting, you can prevent it in somebody else's. And that's what love will do. Biblical love will look at the young generation and say, don't do what we did. Don't hoard all your money. Don't spend all your money. Find something down the middle of the road. Take more vacations, or you don't need to take so many vacations. Just, it's everybody's different. You've walked a path. You've got your scars, your bruises, and your calluses. You've got your injuries, and some of it doesn't have to be handed the next generation. You can prevent it. So do that. Have something to give. Have a legacy to give. Have somebody you invested in other than your own tears. Some of you, you just invest in crying. And at some point, you've got to dry that up. You just stop. I mean, if crying is, if it would have fixed it by now, that third swimming pool of tears you filled, that would have fixed it. And if that's your wife, husbands, disciple her out of all that emotional nonsense. You can only cry so much. Amen. At some point, it falls on deaf ears even in heaven. So this is one of the ways we're going to build the church. We've got to build on everybody else's past experiences. I scour all the old-timers' books. I'm not really interested in new Christian authors because they're not proven yet. There are guys that they, there's a, a ring of truth to what they say, but I want to read after the old-timers. That's how we build in advance. Here in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said to Peter, I say unto you also that thou art Peter, and upon this rock shall, or I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If you've heard any teaching on Matthew 16, 18, you know gates of hell always is symbolic of the wisdom of the city. The city elders always sat at the gates. That's kind of symbolically where they sit. We have, we have city council meetings at a city courthouse or a city county building, and it represents the gates of the city. That's where the decisions are made. There's always a council of elders. Every city is usually run by council members. It's the city council or the elder board. And so the gates of hell, we don't, gates are static, if you didn't know that. They don't come off a wall and come attack you. But what is the gates of hell is wisdom, the wisdom of hell the intellect of hell, the wisdom, the knowledge, the philosophy of hell. Jesus Christ will build his church and the philosophy, the council, the plans, all that that is talked about and made and solidified at a city gate won't prevail against the church. But the point I want to emphasize is Jesus Christ says, I will build my church. He didn't say I had built it or I have builded it. I will build. It's a constant process. Now, we said a couple weeks ago in looking at the church and the symbolism of the ark, Noah's ark, that the church is the last day's ark of safety. And in that, to that end, we made the observation by the very fact that God said build an ark 
it was indicative that a judgment was coming, and that judgment would fall very shortly after the ark was completed, one week to be exact. We, all, we said that by the very fact that the Lord Jesus said, I will build my church, because he hadn't built it yet, hadn't started till Acts 2, depends if you want to say the resurrection or Acts 2, we don't care. It's only 50 days apart, 47 days apart, so it doesn't really matter 2,000 years later. Right there in Acts, the church started. He began to build it upon apostles and prophets, them being the chief cornerstone, the foundation stone, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. He began building it 2,000 years ago. He's still building his church, but that also is, it, it demands or causes us an expectation of a coming judgment. You don't build a boat if there's not going to be a flood, and you don't build a church if there's not going to be a divine judgment on humanity. And so then the other parallel is, we know that with Noah's Ark, those that got in were saved, and those that didn't perished. We know with the local church, the body of Christ, if you're not in the church, we're not going to say church building as of yet, but if you're not a member of the body of Christ, the last day's Ark of Safety, you will perish as well. Now, of course, I'm preaching to the choir because you guys are born-again ones and part of a local church. But to that end, let me show you a hard truth about church. Go to Hebrews 11 keeping with this parallel about the church being the last day's ark of safety. I kind of mentioned it Wednesday night uh, about a friend of mine whose church is always about hope, and hope's very popular right now. I'm thankful that there's a counter-theological movement against hyper-hope. One of my friends calls it being addicted to hopium. I called it methahope or hopodome. It's a synthetic substitute for the real thing. Because rather than repenting of sin and walking with God, you just want to feel good in another service. We do not deny the fact that the world is hurting, our society is hurting, our town is hurting, families are hurting. Why are they hurting? Sin. So how do you give them hope? Pet them? Hug them? Hug only lasts as long as a hug lasts. You can encourage them, but if you don't address the root of their hurt, which is sin, even if they were the victim of a heinous crime, which hurts people, you still have to teach them how to do the word. Because even if they were horrifically raped or a loved one was murdered or some form of injustice truly propagated against them, if you don't teach them how to forgive, there's no hope. So I really reject this notion that we're, everything's hope, 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 hope. We don't even really know what that word means in the Greek context. Greek and Hebrew context means an expectation of God's movement. It's faith. The Hebrew word for hope actually is a form of faith. We use hope, even in the church setting, as the world does, some unexpected good expecting or, you know, we even say, I hope, I hope I win the championship. I hope I get picked. I hope. So some uncertain good, the wanting of an uncertain good. So it's not even a biblical hope that churches are drunk on. The church ought to be the preacher of truth. And the way we fix people is not lying to them. It's by telling them the truth. If doctors acted like modern churches, they wouldn't treat anybody. They just lie to them, give them some hope, give them a lollipop, charge them less for their copay, send them out with that tumor on their face. 
It's not that bad. Wear a hat. That's about what the church is doing. You cannot give people biblical hope without telling them what God expects of them and troubleshooting their sin. Because all hopelessness is resolved when you walk with God. And sometimes that's a little harsh to look at somebody and say, well, you know, the reason you're miserable is because you're a fornicator, an adulterer, you're a porn addict, a drunkard, your wife has no respect for you, and your kids hate you. How do you give hope to that guy the modern church way? you got to lie to him. Or you can say, you're a pervert, a scoundrel. Your wife doesn't like you. I don't blame her. Your kids hate you. I don't blame them. Well, your problem is with God. Get right with God, and then we'll talk about how God's going to help you clean this up. That's a hard way to talk, but boy, it fixes things. So when the church is going to be the church, by existing as the pillar and ground of the truth, it's going to condemn people by simply existing. Here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, by faith, Noah being warned of God of things not seen, kind of like yeah, us, we've been warned that there's a judgment to come that we've not seen. He moved with fear, apprehension, genuine concern. If you and I really believe God was coming back and he was coming with eyes of fire to condemn people to eternal damnation, we'd move with a little bit more apprehension and a lot less seeker-friendly flip-flop church. We'd make, things, make sure things were hotter in our church other than the coffee. We'd make sure the sermons were hot, so was our faith and our fervency. He moved with a fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world. Now, Noah didn't set out to condemn the world. His agenda was not to condemn the world. His agenda was to obey God and to make a distinction. When the church does its thing, it builds walls. The ark had walls. It was a contained vessel. Pretty simple. Those on the inside were one caliber of life, and those on the outside were of another caliber of life. The humans on the inside had one caliber of life that would perpetuate, as did all the animals. And everything outside human or, or animal kingdom, they were doomed for another existence. By building those walls, by building the ribs and building the sides of the boat, he built up a line in the sand, and those on one side were saved and those on the other were condemned. It was not the agenda. The agenda isn't we exist to condemn. The agenda is we exist to obey. But if you obey God, you'll automatically condemn those who disobey. You need to stop worrying about what everybody thinks about you and how you're going to make them look. You need to start worrying about what God says about you, how God views you, how you're making God look. Quit with all this southern fear. What are they going to think? They're going to talk. They already do talk, and they barely think. So what does it matter? I'm not a fan of Bonnie Ray. She had a song called Let's Give Them Something to Talk About. I think it's about adultery and whores. But the lyric comes to mind. And just to answer some of your hearts, because you heard the same song just then in your own head. They're going to talk. Might as well give them the gospel to talk about. You know, they talked about Noah and his kids. You know, they were bullied. You know, they were mocked. That dude's collecting peacocks now. That guy, what was it? Aardvarks. I got animals I ain't ever heard of over there. Have you seen the site lately? You know, the whole of the living world would come and view him as some freak show. Building something he calls a boat. Why? I don't know. He's crazy. 
Yeah, it wasn't crazy when it started raining and the water started coming high. <laughs> he prepared a boat. He saved his family. He condemned the world. That's our job. We build the church, which means if you're not helping around here, glub, glub. He prepared, built, built the ark. His building the ark saved his family. His building the ark, saving his family, condemned those who weren't a part of it. It's pretty simple. You get in on the project, you get in on the inside, you're safe. You stand as a spectator, even though you can spectate from inside. I'm sure in that construction project, people would come and take a tour. Like any construction site can be toured. I've toured countless construction sites just to see their building project and the building practices. See how they did things. They always gave you a tour. I'm sure many of those pagans walked through it and said, well, it's impressive, Noah. They weren't recluses. They weren't like homeschoolers living off the grid. <laughs> living like little Laura Ingalls Wilder. Little house on the prairie. They were interacting with society. They were trading and bartering, rubbing elbows. People would come to see the project. They might even help build a little bit. Maybe try to give to the preacher. But that wasn't enough. Some of you, you're peripheral. When the rains of judgment fall, it'll be glub, glub. And I won't be able to let you in because you had an opportunity, but you rejected it. I want us to understand that the part of being Christians is that we do, by choosing God, condemn everything outside. By choosing Jesus Christ and by affirming the Christian faith, he is exclusive. Jesus Christ is not into diversity like the world is. Now, the body of Christ is wonderfully diverse, but we all look like Jesus. We don't open our door to all religions because all religions don't lead to heaven, no matter what Joel Osteen thinks. There's only one name given to men whereby we must be saved. And that makes everything outside of Jesus condemned to hell. And you have to go ahead and wrap your little mind and little heart around it that if you're going to affirm Jesus Christ, you're going to be called a hater and a condemner and a phobe. They're going to come up with a new term of phobes because they're just drunk with phobes. Yes, 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 and yes. Or I can just say, I'm a Jesus lover and I'm committed to Christ. Please don't be afraid to condemn people by your actions. Amen. It's how we build the church. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We looked at a couple weeks ago when we ordained the Akinhemis to be elders. We look at the elders' requirements there. There's 17 of them in chapter 3. And then after it concludes the requirements of elders, it goes on to talk about the requirements of deacons. And I, we've made a couple arguments to help combat this uh, foolish generation that doesn't believe they need to be a part of the church, that, that we don't need the church, I am the church. And we said, you can't say I am the church any more than a sheep can say I am the flock or a soldier can say I am the farm or the army or a, a, a brick can say I am the house. It's dumb. It's ignorant. It's beyond ignorant. It's, it's lunacy. It's delusional for a Christian to say, I don't need church. I am the church. No, you're an individual who will perish outside the ark when it starts to rain. If we don't need the local church, why do we have a whole chapter dedicated to two officers over the church? Like if you are the church single weirdo, do you ordain your own bishop? Are you your own bishop, elder and deacon? 
How do, you, how do you sort out all these doctrines and teachings that show us how to be a part of the local church? The church is an institution. The church has officers. The church has leadership. The church has fellowship. And Timothy teaches us this about bishops and deacons. It says in verse 15, uh, verse 14, 1 Timothy 3, 14, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry, the implication here is, I have written these things, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself when you stay at home in your underwear as a church of one. <laughs> you can tell folks who believe they don't need a local church don't know their Bible. They're as big of fools as the Christian who uses the marriage of Cana Galilee as, as a promotion for their wine bibbing. I don't need the church. Well, you don't read your Bible. Well, I can drink. Yeah, you definitely don't read your Bible. <laughs> These things have been written that we might know how we ought to behave ourselves in the house of God, which means we should be going there. And there's a protocol for how you behave there. And it's different than Walmart, the market, Putnam County Fair, the high school, and the farmer's market. You don't have 31 behavioral protocols to go to the farmer's market. But you do between two officers, the elder and the deacon. I love how it is very legalistic because there are 17 criteria just to be an elder in the church and another 13 or 14 just to be a servant in the local church. One of the criteria to be an elder is you know how to handle your own house because that's how you have to learn to handle the house of God. And if you can't take care of your own wife or your own kids, you'll never be in charge of the house of God. Because your wife and kids reflect your leadership ability. And if you failed with both, why would God give you more people to fail? Amen. So we have a list of behaviors that teach us how to behave in the house of God. And these behaviors condemn those that don't live by them. We, we, we're worried about condemning for failing to see condemnation comes in two forms, active and passive. If I only promote faith-filled people by staying on the positive, faith-filled people, come over here with me, you by default condemn faithless. Now what secularism and quote-unquote diversity training teaches us how to do is to make accommodations for everybody that doesn't pass the test. It focuses, now I'm not against diversity training like we should hire women if they qualify. And let's hire minorities if they qualify. Often minorities are harder workers than white folk. So I'm not trying to split a racial hair here. I'm all for hiring the best person. I'm all for character and quality and qualification. I hate quota. All right, just to be clear on that. Affirmative action is the most racist thing on the planet. It's just government. It's like government-sanctioned American apartheid. Because we only hire people based on their color and their gender. We're not even sure what gender is anymore. Are we sure about color? I like somebody said Clarence Thomas was the first black woman on the Supreme Court. <laughs> Sorry, Kentaji. I don't know if that offends you. I was endorsing a black man by condemning a Democrat. A black man who's married to a white woman. Maybe that's why they don't like him. Do you guys even follow politics enough to know what kind of puke you're being fed by your, like, little collective. Yeah, anyway, it's such a little 
middle school game. When you side with these 17 criteria, everybody that doesn't meet them is condemned by default. I feel condemned. You should. You don't meet the standard. When you go out for an Olympic sport or any kind of sport, they only say, all right, everybody, when I went out for soccer, I didn't make the team. If my name wasn't on the roster for the team, it's condemned by default. They weren't aiming to condemn me. I just wasn't good enough. This modern generation wants everybody to feel good enough, even if they aren't good enough. When you build the ark, when you build the church, everybody on the outside, by existing out there, by their choice, are condemned already. And we can't do anything to make them feel less condemned except to say, hey, the door's open still. Come on in, and whosoever will can be born again. And whosoever wants to in a church can grow up and be an elder, or grow up and be a deacon, or grow up and be a real dad. Or if you don't want to, be condemned. I just feel so condemned. Well, you should be because you are. I just feel like a woman. You should feel like a woman because you are a woman. I just feel like a man. Well, you should. You are a man. And if you're condemned, you should feel condemned because you are condemned. You want us to pet you and make you feel not condemned when God has already condemned you. John chapter 3 says, whosoever believes not is condemned already. You want us to make some allowance God doesn't for you when our standard, if you don't meet it, condemns already. How do you help all those outside the ark in Noah's day not feel so wet? How do you make them feel not so tired treading water? I can't. The door was open for almost 100 years. You could have come anytime you wanted, but you decided not to. How does it feel that an armadillo took your place, Bob? Tell you what, in memorial, we're going to name these two armadillos, Bob and Mary. We'll remember you by them. Your legs getting tired? How long can you tread water? Because I got good word this is going to last a year. And I'm sorry, I think you're getting really tired trying to hold those babies of yours above your head as you tread water. We forget the flood wiped out babies, toddlers, but it was mom and dad's fault. We cannot avoid condemnation, so we're not coming off the wall to make people feel better. You want to feel better, get your tail in the house of God. You want hope, serve God. If you don't want hope, quit living like a cookful pervert. You want condemnation, just keep drinking it. You are the one that controls condemnation, not me. You're just so condemning. No, I hold a standard. You know because you're smart. You don't match it. So it feels good to please God. And I don't have permission to lower God's standard to make you feel good. My job is not to make you feel good. My job is to make you feel God. And sometimes God will condemn you worse than me. He will convict you. He will remind you. And you will beat yourself up because you know better by now. So this list here teaches us how to behave ourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The local church, not some nimrod in his underwear streaming right now. (laughs) In your little underwear church. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The house of God, which is the church of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The local church is to be the pillar and foundation of truth. And when you don't line up, you're condemned. Cast over to judgment. Now, that is an eternal condemnation, thank God. You can recover yourself if you want. 
But we're dealing with a generation of Christians and churches who have unlawfully restored people who didn't qualify. Given mercy and grace to people who didn't humbly ask for it. It's, it's just simple. Just come up to God's standard. Judge yourself by the word of God and where you meet, yay, and where you don't, fix. And if you're in the process of fixing, there's no condemnation. I'm in the process of fixing it. But we don't have permission. I guess the churches believe they can manipulate their preachers like in the book of Jeremiah to tell you things you want to hear so you'll feel good about your sin and your failures. They're called failures because they're not praiseworthy. And how could I endorse what is not praiseworthy? That would violate Scripture. Now, if I start violating Scripture because you feel bad about your violation of Scripture, two violations of Scripture doesn't make a fulfillment of Scripture. If we're both violating Scripture, we're both in trouble. How about you just obey God, I'll obey God, we'll march on together. When we hold the standard, we condemn those who don't make the standard. It seems fitting now. I think I have my baton rouge in my pulpit. See if we have the Baton Rouge, not the city. I do have my Baton Rouge. This isn't an authentic one. This is a homemade one. I have a real one up in my office. So this is a red baton, as the Frenchies say, a Baton Rouge. And there's a city, of course, in Louisiana called Baton Rouge. I spent part of my childhood there. My family's from Louisiana. And this is what they use to pick peppers especially on McEnany Island where they grow and manufacture Tabasco. They grow Tabasco peppers. That's why it's called Tabasco sauce. And they use this. The real ones are much smaller, but we made a bigger one so you can see it. The baton is painted red to match the color of the ripe pepper in the season that it is needed to process. So the pepper pickers, of whom Peter is my favorite, you can't avoid a Peter Piper pepper pun. They would hold the baton in their hand, and as they're going through pepper plants, it's all done by hand because they don't all uh, age equally. They don't all ripen equally. They just they grab the pepper. They lay it right beside there, and if it's the same color, they just pick it. This baton rouge is the standard. This we could call the baton condemnation. <laughs> How would we say it in French? Condemnation. See that I am the half French? <laughs> Along with the half 52nd of Cherokee and the Scotch Irish and uh, I am two-thirds black. <laughs> that equals I am American. That is all that means and I have no rights. This is the stick of condemnation because if you're not the right color you don't get picked. It's not, the, it's not the stick's fault. It's the pepper's fault. The stick was painted by the farmer who knows what he wants. And now we have the Lord, the husbandman, who knows what he wants. And he gave us a baton rouge called the Bible. And the Bible sets forth the standard. And if he comes along our life and he holds that Bible and we line up with it and he picks us We've been chosen. If he holds the baton of his word up to us and he rejects us, we're condemned. Not his fault, not his standards fault, your fault. The wonderful thing is, if you want to, you can change. 
And he shows you, hey, guys, look, the color hasn't changed. It's always been this red. All you have to be is ripen. We'd say, grow up. Fruit and vegetables ripen. Christians, grow up. All you have to do is grow up to match the color of his standard, and you'll be chosen for whatever God has for you. But the word of God is a standard we can't compromise. If I, as a preacher, know what the color is of God's standard, and I select anything but, I'm condemned. And I'm not getting condemned to make you feel better. I'm not failing my God because you do. So the baton, the baton condemnation, the stick of condemnation, it doesn't have to hit you. It just has to be held up next to you. And you'll realize I'm a failure. I have come short of the glory of God, which we all have. But what we then do is repent and bring up that area of our life to the standard of God's word. That's how we build the church. The ark of God's safety stands as a giant baton rouge. A building of rouge. A building of condemnation because if you're not in here, you're condemned. How many folks drive past churches every Sunday, see the parking lots full, and you know they're beat up? Is the purpose of that church worshiping the Lord Sunday morning to condemn the drunkards at the red light out here? No. It happens by default because they know they should be in here. I believe the presence of God coming out of the building convicts. We pray that often that folks walking up and down broad here would feel the presence of God, would be drawn, convicted, or at least say, I need to go back to my church. What am I doing? What am I doing? Just by being the standard. I think about uh, the roller coasters, and they have their height requirement. We would call it the height of condemnation. And every little kid from the 70s and 80s would walk up to that thing and go on their tippy toes. And sometimes those workers didn't care. Sometimes they knew we can't afford this because if you slip out of that, when it's upside down, you're dead, I'm fired, we're in trouble. So nope, down on your heels, boy. I'm sorry. I don't make the rules. I just enforce them. That three foot six or 48 inches, whatever the height requirement is for a roller coaster or a tilt-a-whirl or whatever it is, if you're not high enough, you're just not high enough. Sorry. And if you're not the right color for God's standard, I don't mean that in a racial sense, you understand that, but with the Baton Rouge, if you don't match the red, you don't get picked. Same with the Word of God. These standards are held to us, and we can't get mad at the preacher or the Bible or God. They are His eternal standard. We just rise up to it. I'm thankful that we can have a higher set of standards. Look at 2 Timothy. We're about done here. Have you learned anything so far? A little bit all over the place this morning, but 2 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 3 said, I've written these things that you might know how to behave yourself in the house of God because there's a protocol expected of us. And that being written to the church, that lets us know every Christian should look at that list of 31 requirements, 17 and 14, and aim to come up. If you attend a church and you're not aiming for 1 Timothy chapter 3, you're a backslider. That those list of requirements show us how to behave in the house of God. These things have I written unto you, that you might know how to behave yourself in the house of God. Well, Timothy wasn't an elder like he was about to appoint or a deacon. He's the pastor, but those requirements still befall him. And anybody else that wants to be selected or picked 
according to God's standards. So shame on anybody who comes here still, and that's some of you, you're peripheral. You're Sunday morning only. You can come up if you want. I don't exist to condemn you. I preach a word. Your standard doesn't match it. That condemns you. The deficit condemns you. If you have a positive faith, you can look at that standard, see the deficit, and go, praise God, I'm going to make it. Praise God, I can make the difference. If I got cut from the soccer team, well, praise God, how far was I behind the cutting line? I can make up the difference in the offseason. If you want it bad enough, you can serve God and grow. You can ripen. Sometimes I'm sure, I don't know, I've never picked peppers. I'm sure that pepper picker holds that baton and is like, ah, oh, you know, if I wait another hour in this heat, it's going to be the right color. Do I pick it now? Listen, dude, I'll come back down this line in two hours. You better be red. I'll pick you. All you have to do is grow. All you have to do is grow up. Don't lick your wounds. Be condemned. Get mad at the preacher. Get your feelings hurt. That just proves you're a sissy. How long are you going to get your feelings hurt? Haven't you learned by now it's not personal? We're dealing with God, not middle school games. This isn't some kind of eternal Red Rover, Red Rover. I didn't get picked for the dodgeball team. This isn't that petty. This is eternity. Get over it. Come up higher. You're born again. You're able. I'm sorry you had weird parents that didn't love you. Grow up now. Be real for God. Here in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 19 says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure. Well, the church of God is the pillar and foundation of truth, so there's an overlap here. Having this seal, or this seal of approval, the Lord knows them that are his, and let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That takes growing up. But in a great house, that would be the house of God, because we're talking about the house of God this morning. In a great house, they are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. We don't care what the vessel's made out of. We don't care if you're rich or poor, super educated, or barely got any kind of street smarts. We don't care if you're white, black, Hispanic, Asian, African, African-American, European, non-white Latino, white, non-Hispanic. We're just making up stuff now, I think. <laughs> white, non-Hispanic, or Hispanic, non-white. I don't, I don't even know what this means. Samoan, Pacific Islander. Everybody's got to feel important now. We don't care what color you are. What we're interested in is the honor or the dishonor. Are you ripe and mature or unripe? failing to mature. Dishonorable people refuse to grow up. Part of growing up is having honor. You teach your kids how to honor their adults, how to honor each other, how to honor every scenario of life. You teach honor and that helps your kids grow up. Some adults were never taught that. The only thing they honor is themselves. Here we have this great house, vessels of honor and dishonor. Verse 21 says, if a man therefore purge himself from the dishonorable vessels, he shall be a vessel unto honor. One of the ways you grow up is get away from dishonorable people. Because dishonor will beget more dishonor. Bad company affects good morals. So you've got to be careful who you run with, even in the local church. Everybody in this church is not praiseworthy. Everybody in this church isn't honorable. Everybody in this church isn't mature. 
Some of you get in pride over our church, and that's only because you don't pastor it. I look, I know all your dirt. Any given Sunday morning, I have porn addicts, wine bibbers, folks who are verbally abusive to their family, folks struggling with homosexuality, which is still a sin. I have folks who are fornicators. We have folks who have come out of all of that. We have former homosexuals here this morning. We have former criminals and convicted felons here this morning. We have folks who are thinking about divorce this morning. In a great house, there's many vessels. There's never any room for pride in any house because people come to that house. We have folks who failed to raise their children, right? who are now suffering the consequences of it. we got nothing to be in pride about. We have folks that make a lot of money and folks that make next to no money. Tithers and tithe thieves. Folks who refuse to get a job and folks who refuse to let two go because they're working too much. we got a lot of issues. What God's looking for, though, is honor. And if you'll purge yourself from the dishonorable people, you will be sanctified, good or meet for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. Your job is to be the high standard in the local church. That's how we build this thing. If everybody's a vessel of dishonor, we're a mess. Our aim is to become a vessel of honor. And your job, whether, where, how are you judge yourself, whether you think, well, I'm kind of honorable or I'm kind of dishonorable, your job is to say, Lord, help me be more honorable. Now, let me back up. For all the sin present here this morning, I don't care. I don't care about your sin. I do, but I don't. We'll help you grow out of it. We'll help you. We'll pray you out of it. We'll disciple you out of it. You know I don't condemn you. You guys bring me this stuff in private. I don't take the next service and bash your sin. I bash all sin pretty equally. And anytime you think I'm just wearing you out, you have to understand there's so much more sin present than you. How come is this always about you? There's always an issue present. Your heart is, Lord, let me grow. Let me be like Jesus. Lord, help me come away from all this shame. Help me come away from this mediocrity, this lukewarm Christianity. Help me grow, grow, grow. What if we could get every vessel in the house of God almost all honorable? Then when new folks came in, they couldn't help but be honorable. But by having honorable vessels, by even this verse alone, there's a line. You're either honorable or you're condemned. There's no middle ground in that verse. You're either ripe or you ain't getting picked. Our job is to aspire to be clean, holy, mature, and honorable before God. That is what makes for a local church. If all we ever peddle is hope, 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 hope. How do you give people hope but say, this is what maturity looks like. Now aim for it. Those of you with marriage problems, you know why you have marriage problems? Because you're sinful at home. Even if the least of it is you're yelling and screaming at each other like a bunch of brats. How do I give you hope? without thumping you for your immaturity. I can't fix your marriage until you fix your walk with God. So what do you want to do? God has a plan for your marriage. He loves marriage. He wants to give you a good marriage. That's hopium. It's accurate, but non-applicable. Everything's true. He does love your marriage. He does love you. He loves marriage, period. He wants to give you a better marriage. But let's answer the truth. He can't give you a better marriage because you're a moron. 
He can't help your marriage because you won't repent. He's not proud of your marriage because you're sinful against the wife of your youth. So I can lie to you and give you all sorts of flowery fluff, but no full well in the parking lot, you're going to yell at your spouse. Or I can thump you and say, if I ever hear word again about you yelling at your wife, me and two deacons will show up. We will break you as a man. You will wet your pants and cower. And if I hear it happening again, we may call the law. And I'm not sure who's going to jail that day. Because there's no reason for a man to be verbally abusive. I know you have self-control because you're not that stupid to me. You don't deserve your wife or all the kids you made. You're a caveman and an animal, but you don't have to be. There's hope in that statement. You're an animal, we'll call the dog catcher. Pray brings non-lethal forms of restraint. All right, a little punchy this morning, but we want to be vessels unto honor, prepared unto every good work. If you want to be chosen by God, and let the baton rouge fall upon you. If you want to be chosen by God for every good work, you've got to grow up. You have to ripen to God's standard, not Chris McMichael's standard, not the Baptist standard or the Methodist standard, God's standard. And once you ripen, you will step away from people and your promotion by default condemns. You cannot fear who you leave behind as you serve God. Your promotion always condemns. God's choosing automatically diselects other people. It's an act of condemnation. And you got to be okay with that. Some of you are purposely throttling back on your walk with God because you're afraid of how it's going to make other people look. You cannot care. You're called forward with Jesus. Let God sort the rest of it out. Quit pulling punches and slowing down because you don't want your husband to feel bad or your kids to look bad or your mama to look bad. Leave it all behind and march on for Jesus and let God sort it out. His promotion of you may provoke them to jealousy and a better walk. So let's not dial this thing back thinking we're going to help God do his job, all right?